Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today in the book of Revelation, Dr. Newfeld will be bringing us a message entitled, The Second Coming. So let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld joins us now. Second coming of Jesus is the hope of every believer. Our hope is not that things tend to work out well in the end or that better days are coming. Our hope is firmly fixed on one clear reference point. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Or consider 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, which begins with the words, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And to that, Jesus gives a long answer, but it culminates with what he says in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Indeed, when we consider how the New Testament uses the word hope, it's always related to this pivotal event in all of history. Titus 2 verse 12 says it well. It tells us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What is the blessed hope of the believer? Well, Titus 2 verse 13 says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we come to Revelation 19, 11 to 16, we come to a vision of that reality. John describes the moment of Christ's return with clarity. So let's read. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, before we dig into this fascinating and hopeful text, let's remember the background. Up till now, Revelation has announced the fall of Babylon, city of the Antichrist. Then an announcement is made. In very short order now, the great banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb, is going to take place. And then without delay, John says, I saw heaven open. Now, the last time we read a line remotely like that was way back in chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. But back in chapter 4, it was only an open door in which John is invited to enter and see the throne room of God. Well, here it's different. All of heaven stands open, not just to John, but to the entire human race. It's as if the veil is suddenly removed and the human race sees what's always been there. All of heaven is standing before them. And rather than describing heaven, John simply says, Behold a white horse. And then what follows, we'll see a description of three things. The first is a description of Jesus himself. 
And the second is a description of the battle that ensues from his coming out of heaven to earth. And then third, it's the title that Jesus bears. So let's consider all three. We start with not the second coming, but heaven open, to which the human race is given a vision of Jesus. It's as if there's a moment of pause before he descends to make war. And John describes Jesus, and we will notice that he gives us seven descriptions, each necessary to understand who it is that appears in the heavens. The first is that he's seated on a white horse. Now, the only other time that we saw a white horse in Revelation was all the way back in chapter 6, when we saw a white horse coming out after the breaking of the first seal. But this horse is not to be confused with that one, although the color is white, and that's always associated with purity and with victory. John is saying that before the battle ensues, the outcome is already certain. This is not going to be like human warfare. See, while it's true that in human warfare, occasionally, one side has overwhelming strength, and yet, as we know, unexpected things do happen in war. Not so here. The battle is over when the Messiah sits on his horse. Second, John says that the one on the horse is called faithful and true. You know, in Jeremiah 10, verse 10, Jeremiah calls God the God of truth. And in John 1, 14, John wrote of Jesus that he is full of grace and truth. That is, Jesus not only speaks the truth, he is the truth. No lie exists in him because no lie can exist in him. But here at the second coming, we're told that the rider on the horse is not only called truth, but he's also called faithful. And that's to say, not only does he speak the truth, but he acts on the basis of truth. He's faithful in that all he promises he does. That's why he appears in heaven. He has said he would, and there he is. Now, if he promised to finally return, now he returns. He spoke truth, and he acts according to truth. So here he appears in heaven on a horse of victory and proves that he's faithful. That's why he both judges and makes war. For if he did not do these things, he would not be faithful to his word. Now, third, John says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. In many ways, this description of Jesus is not unlike John's first encounter with Jesus while he's on the island of Patmos. I mean, there John says that when he saw Jesus, first time, he noticed that his eyes were like flames of fire. And the idea here is that nothing can be hidden from him. His gaze searches everything, and nothing is outside of his vision. Everything is laid bare before him. Well, fourth, says John, that on his head are many diadems. And we're supposed to, at this juncture, contrast that to the Antichrist. For he's called in Revelation, the beast. We're told that the beast has 10 crowns. That indicates that while his power is great, it's limited to 10. But this one has an untold number of crowns. He he rules every kingdom, every nation, every aspect of the entire creation. He rules, and that's seen on his head. He's the rightful ruler of all things, and he demonstrates that as he sits on his horse before an open heaven. Well, fifth, John says that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, a great deal has been said about that, and a great many theories have been put forward. And and I, for my part, find it acceptable to leave this part of the vision somewhat of a mystery. 
We know that Jesus bears many names. He's the root and offspring of David. He's Daniel, son of man. He's also the son of God. He is Messiah. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. I mean, the names of Jesus go on and on. So when I read that there's a name for Jesus that no one knows but he himself, well, I'm content to think that there are things about Jesus that will always remain a profound mystery. See, I must never think that I can get my mental arms around the being of Jesus. His greatness will always escape my most profound thought of him. He quite simply is greater than any man or woman has ever imagined. We must, while we are given to contemplate the revelation of Jesus found in Scripture, we're always going to end by saying that I have caught but a glimpse of his greatness. There's more than I have imagined. Well, we've already noticed five descriptions of the returning Christ, that he's seated on a white horse, that he's called faithful and true, his eyes are like fire, many crowns adorn his head, and there is a name that describes him that we will never comprehend. But, but John's not done. Sixth, John says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There are two acceptable interpretations of this, and the first is that this vision harkens back to a description that's found in Isaiah 63, verse 3. See, there we read, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. See, this vision would indicate that the robe is dipped in blood, which anticipates his vengeance on his enemies. Well, there's another interpretation that suggests that the robe is dipped in blood because it remembers Christ's own bloody slaughter on the cross. That is, the one who comes poised for battle has already won the greatest of all battles, the one he has secured when he defeated all the powers of Satan and darkness as he died on the cross and secured a people for himself. Now, either of those explanations is appropriate, but I, for my part, really want to keep them both. After all, we've learned from Revelation chapter 5 that the lion who is conquered is none other than the lamb that was slaughtered for the sins of his chosen ones. Well, it leaves only one final vision of Jesus. John says that he is called the Word of God. Now, John has already called him that in his previous book, The Gospel of John. See, in the beginning, said John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Truth in Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth in Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth in Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth In Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today. When modern-day Christians speak about the Word of God, I mean, most often they're referring to the Bible, and that's right. 
The Bible is a record of the very words of God himself. But it's also right to speak of Jesus as the Word of God. As John says in his first book, the Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word that was spoken by the Father. Now, having described Jesus on the horse with all of heaven open behind him, John now moves to describe the war that follows. And at this point, we must acknowledge some disagreement among Bible teachers as to who it is that we're speaking about. You see, verse 14 says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, are these the angelic host, or is this the church of Jesus? I mean, the arguments for this being identified with the church comes from the garments they're wearing. We're going to remember that when John described the invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb, that he said that the church was dressed in fine linen, bright and pure. And so, If that's right, you have to imagine that an event happens now that John has not described. Immediately before the second coming of Jesus, the dead in Christ rise and those who will remain are caught up or raptured to meet the Lord in the air. Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 15. But on the other hand, we do well to consider what the rest of the New Testament says. So we start with what Jesus said is recorded in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. He said, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, the timing is not clear from that verse. Does the gathering of his elect happen before he comes in the clouds, or does it come after that? I mean, the text just simply doesn't say. Let's consider Colossians 3, verse 4. See, that text says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, here again, the exact sequence of events is missing, except to say that the second coming of our Lord and the translation of the saints seem to happen in close proximity to each other. Now, that idea is reinforced in Titus 2, verse 13, which says that the hope of the church is the appearance of our Lord, something that corresponds perfectly with this passage here in Revelation 19. But one text, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, gives us some pause. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, again, I've got to make a federal case about this, and I certainly know that this is not a reason for Christians to fight with each other. But it seems to me that Christ comes, that is, he descends, he defeats the Antichrist, and then we're caught up to meet him. And by the way, please don't write me letters on this. I mean, if the only difference between us is the actual timing of the rapture, I mean, really, this a cause for division? I don't think so. We have a unity that far exceeds the timing of those events. At any rate, If the heavenly host that follows Christ on his white horse are the angelic host, and it's fascinating for me to see, they're not involved in the battle. Notice our text closely. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, we see two important features of the war of the Lamb. See, first we notice that he does not reach into his scaffold and pull out his mighty sword and and begin to engage in warfare. 
Instead, the sword comes from his mouth. We're supposed to remember that this world came into being not through the efforts of a sweating deity, such as one finds in the ancient creation myths of pagan religions. The great God of creation created the world without effort, without, if you will, even breaking out in a sweat. Well, if that's so, and it is, then how do you think Jesus will defeat the beast and the armies arrayed with him at the Battle of Armageddon? And the answer is that he will destroy them with a mere word that comes out of his mouth. You remember Revelation 16, which describes the sixth bowl of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. And with it, the kings from the east gather, along with the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon who is the devil. Gather at Armageddon, says Revelation 16, 16, and they assemble in battle against the Lord. They will not surrender this earth to his kingdom. Indeed, bolstered on by Satan, they're able to perform powerful signs that give them the courage to think that they can overcome the return of Christ. But there he appears in heaven, and the battle itself, well, it seems like a letdown. It's not a fever-pitched episode when a battle seems to tilt one way and then the other before it's resolved instead. The earth's mighty men gather, following Satan, but the one on the horse is in heaven and merely speaks a word and the battle's over. And then says John, in consequence of this battle, and here I'm referring to the latter part of Revelation 19:15, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when John tells us that, he's referring to Psalm chapter 2. So listen to Psalm 2, verses 2 to 5, in light of these words in Revelation. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So remember how important it is for believers to hear this. Or for that matter, think about the seven churches to whom this book was originally written. And they had feared the Roman emperor. How short-sighted that was. And the same is true for us. Whom do you fear? Read Revelation 19.15 and stop fearing man. And stop fearing Satan. Fear God. Fear his Messiah. That's wisdom. Now then, when John says the Messiah will tread the winepress of the fury of God, John is referring to the prophecy in Isaiah in which all the enemies of God will be crushed under his feet as grapes are crushed under the feet of those who make wine. See, you must never ask, I wonder who's going to win, the grapes or the ones who come to crush them? I mean, the answer is is so obvious. Now then, we have paused and seen John's description as heaven opens and, and the rider appears. We then witness John's depiction of the war, which is brief and lopsided. Jesus simply speaks the word from heaven. So what's left to say? John, as we see in verse 16, has something he wants to say in conclusion of this matter. He says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, here now is the fourth name that is given to Jesus the Messiah. Remember that Jesus is known to himself by a name that only he himself knows. You also remember that Jesus is known to his church, says John, by two names, both faithful and true. But now we find out that Jesus is known to the world by his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is to say, he is the universal sovereign. 
In this world, there may be many kings and lords, but he is king and lord over them. Let me put it another way. Every president, every prime minister, every chancellor, every dictator, every king will answer to Jesus for all of his or her activities. Jesus will declare that even while their nations were subject to them, they were subject to him. They will not get special pleading by saying, you know, my nation was a secular nation or my nation had a different set of values. I mean, none of it matters for he is their king and their Lord. And if they rebel against him, they will fall. See, child of God, have you ever known your savior? I mean, perhaps for you, Jesus has never been more than your personal solace, your personal place of refuge your reason for confidence when it comes to the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Jesus is all of that, praise God, but he is so much more. Jesus is the rightful ruler of everything. He is the rightful ruler of your nation. Your nation is subject to Jesus. If your nation refuses his commands, it will give an account to him, for he is the final judge of all things. It's not our national constitution that will matter in the end, but it is the final judgment of the Lord Jesus. That's what King of Kings actually means. And that name is emblazoned on his robe and on his thigh. So when Jesus comes and he appears in midair, and he comes not as an invading army, he comes as the rightful ruler of all that exists. He's not taking over, he's reclaiming that which is his by right. This is our Messiah. John, I want to ask you a question, and I hope it's not too obvious. I don't think it is, but we spend so much time talking about the second coming, and I think we understand from this passage and others what that means. But what do we talk about when we talk about the first coming? We don't use that term very often. Yes, very good. I mean, the first coming is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Christ, uh, the Messiah, entered into the world. God's Messiah entered the world in the form of a baby. He comes in humility. Um, but the second coming, he comes in power and great glory. I mean, the difference is between his condescension and his humbling himself to the point of death. That's the first coming. And the second coming, his coming in grandeur and power in the heavens, and all the nations of the earth see him and they mourn. Um, so it is the same Jesus who comes on both occasions, but he comes with such a different agenda. So that, I think, is, is the answer to that question. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. We couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement and the reassurance that while we embrace new technology, the gospel message remains true. 
Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.